Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today we have an article read by Katina. So do you want to give us kind of a preview before we chat about some things that have been going on lately? Yeah, so I am going to be talking about an article that just came out. So it's hot off the presses, um, which basically is discussing some of the uh, negative intentions that might be behind companies that offer uh, work-life balance programs. So we're going to be talking a little bit of the downside, potentially, of what is sort of a work-family narrative. Um, Mm. And so I know we've talked very positively about work-life balance and um, things that companies can do to create work-life balance. But uh, based on this article, it seems like companies are not always actually interested in solving those issues when they put these programs in place. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Interesting. I have a lot of thoughts and I can't wait to share them. Yes. Um, But in the meantime, why don't you tell everybody about your awful, awful, sad story (laughs) from the past couple weeks? (laughs) Well, if you've been following us on social media, you know that my two little feet are broken. Um, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Sad. My feet are crying right now. They're crying. Um, They're crying less now than they were like right after surgery and stuff like that. But um, yes, I fell while I was walking and um, it's not really, I wish I had like a cool story. Like I was like running a marathon or something, but I wasn't, (laughs) I was just walking like a normal person. Um, But uh, we posted a post uh, today actually, um, which basically talks about the fact that I, was looking at my phone, uh, which I think was one of the factors that contributed to my fall. And so I think that at the very least, the take home message of this is that I should do better at being present in the moment. I think it's a little hard to do, especially (laughs) when we have so many pulls on our time and like, you know, like you're wedding planning and you're working and you're doing a bunch of stuff. And like, we just both have a lot of things going on. I think it can be really easy to get sucked into doing too many things at one time. And um, I think that's partially what contributed to my fall. So at least I'm taking that out of it to try to be more present. Yeah, I feel guilty of that all the time. And I, after you told me that story, I was like, oh gosh, like I need to pay attention because I don't want to fall too. I yeah. got really scared. You were a fear yeah, factor to me. So then I was like, okay, well now I'm going to pay more attention when I'm walking because I'm, I'm guilty of looking down at emails and you know trying to respond to an email while walking which is yes. like insane that's yes. not helpful at all yeah um but you know we all do it yeah it's definitely one of those things where I think that especially like with social media and just a lot of different things I mean part of what we're going to be talking about today in the article is this like 24 7 work culture where you have flexibility about when and where you do your work, but then that also means that you feel like you should be doing work in places that maybe aren't amenable to you doing work. And I think the interesting thing about this entire like incident is that all of the factors that caused it are things that I have had conversations with Brendan about like that I need to pay more attention to. So like these shoes that I wore are shoes that I have many times been walking and almost tripped in um and so I I but I like them and I wasn't thinking about like practicality when I wore them I was thinking like oh these will be cute which is like a totally stupid thing to think yeah. <laughs> um and so like it was the shoe that like I wasn't being like careful about I was making a quick decision that was based on like a superficial reason instead of like actually thinking through what I should be wearing and like I he has talked to me on several occasions, uh, especially recently, because in Alexandria, as you know, like the sidewalks are super bumpy and like there's yeah, a lot of like sticking up bricks and whatever. And he's talked to me a lot of times about a I've tripped around here many times while looking at my phone, like just like a regular trip, like you hop a couple times and then you're fine. Um, <laughs> and he's said to me like many times, like if you keep looking at your phone when you're walking, like you're going to fall one of these times. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. But like, it doesn't happen. Right. So then you're like, eh, whatever. Um, (laughs) So this is like one of those things where like literally the signs have been there that like 
at some point this was going to happen and I wasn't paying attention to the signs other times because it was just kind of like, uh, you know, didn't seem like it could be reality. And then now it actually happens. And I'm like, you know what? I should have paid attention more uh, before. But then also, like, you know, the universe was kind of telling me, like, these are not things that are helpful for you and you should pay more attention. And the little signs weren't working. So I got a big sign. <laughs> mm. I mean, seriously, big sign. I yeah. have never heard of someone breaking both feet know, in one I fall. Know. Like, I, I think that's one of the most, I'm not like fabulous it's in a good way, stupid. but it's just like unreal. Yeah. I just, I, I don't even understand. My mom, she called me after <laughs> I told her about your accident and she was like, how did she break both feet? And I was like, I couldn't, I can't imagine it. I can't picture how that happened. Yeah. Mom's like, I'm in the ear all the time. I have never seen someone break both feet unless they've been in a horrific car accident. And I was like, well, yeah. Katina's talented. <laughs> yep. You know. <laughs> oh my god. I can't. I just can't. But so I'm glad funny. that you're on the mend. Yeah. Um, that you had the surgery, that you're slowly slowly getting better me too I'm glad as well I uh I feel a lot better now that like just even though like the surgery kind of stunk like having to go through that like the process at least is done like all the hard parts are over and now it's just healing I mean it'll take a while to heal but like you know the worst part is the you know having it broken getting surgery the couple days after surgery so like at least that whole part is over now, which I'm very happy mm -hmm. about. And luckily you only had to have surgery on one. That's yes. kind of nice too. So the other one hopefully can be healing more quickly yes. and give you some support when you need to need to stand. Yes. The other one is only broken on the top. So obviously the ankle is like you can't put any weight on it, but when it's broken on the top, like I'm not supposed to be like doing a tap dance on it but like I <laughs> I can stand if my leg is straight I can stand on it um so you know that is actually super helpful because if it was both ankles like I don't that that I'd be I'd be out for the count for a while with regard to any kind of crutching or walking or anything so yeah um so at least at least there's that or uh as my mom said which I thought was really funny she was like at least it's not your brain. Like, <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Very good point. At and, least you know, it's luckily not my for brain. us, luckily for us, everything that we do is online. Really, like our. I mean, besides teaching, which I know is going to be a hassle and a pain for you right now, trying to figure out how to get in a classroom. But most of what we're doing is going to be on a computer. So at least you don't need to walk for most yes. of that. And I actually think that I would go a little more insane if I couldn't type. Like, if I was not able to, like, use my computer, I mean, that would be, like, incredibly frustrating from a work perspective. So I feel like at least, like, I can sit on this bed. And I think we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast that I bought this, like, bed that turns into a couch, basically, when we first moved here. And so that's yeah. been so nice because I can like move the feet part and I can like make it into a little couch. And I think that that has actually helped me a lot because I'm actually like pretty comfy in my little bed house. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. At least you can be yes. comfortable for a little while. At some point you're probably going to hate it because you just don't want to be there anymore. But yes, for no, now. <laughs> very true. Very, very true. I agree. Um, but yeah. So anyway, I'm on the mend, but it'll be a slow a slow process and I just have to be patient, which I'm very bad at patience, but I also am not that good at mindfulness and I think I need to get better <laughs> at both. So maybe it's a good learning lesson for me. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'm glad you're positive and looking for learnings from it. Yes. Um, and obviously wishing that your healing process is quick and smooth and easy and as painless as it possibly can be. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I think I think that that's the goal. Um, so, yeah, that's my life. Great. Well, I'm, I'm not great, but glad that, Good enough. you know, it's moving in the right direction, I suppose. Um, well, tell us about your article. What What's the article topic, title, yes. all the good things? Yes. So 
This article um, I'm really excited about. I just uh, was emailed this article the other day um, from a colleague because I'm working on a paper that uh, has something to do with uh, this kind of story. And uh, so I was curious to read it. And after I read it, I just really liked it a lot. And so the article is by Irene Padovic and uh, Robin Illy and Aaron Reed. And uh, it's published in Administrative Science Quarterly. And the article is called Explaining the Persistence of Gender Inequality, the Work Family Narrative as a Social Defense Against the 24-7 Work Culture. Um, so basically this article discusses the ways in which the work family narrative as a rationale for why women don't advance in organizations to the extent that they should um, and why work family solutions that are provided as a way to maybe enhance the ability of women to move forward in organizations are put in place maybe not with the intention of actually fixing the problem but as almost like window dressing looking like you're fixing the problem and um, if it's not fixing the problem Maybe organizations are not so inclined to actually pay attention to what would fix the problem because some of what would fix the problem actually cuts to the core of what the organization uh, wants from its employees or expects from its employees with regard to hours worked and time spent on work itself. So it's kind mm -hmm. of looking at whether or not organizations actually wish to provide flexibility when they offer work family or if they're looking at it as a way to kind of look like they're doing something to help women's advancement, but they're not actually interested in shaking up the status quo of the organization. So that's kind of what the paper is about. And it's a very complicated paper, so I'm not going to get too much in depth about it. And you should definitely read the paper if you're interested. It's really, really interesting. But I do want to talk about some of the main points that they make in the paper because I think we've talked really positively about work-family balance, and it is positive to, um, you know, find balance or do things that enhance your balance and the research shows that feeling balanced is a positive thing um, and we've talked a lot about accommodations that companies make that can help people with balance but it's not always I think I think a lot of things that are generally positive also have a dark side and I think that this mm -hmm. article highlights that and I think it's important for us to also have that conversation as well um, so that we can really like get to the nitty-gritty of the the whole picture. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that there's always a flip side to um, the positive. So I think yeah. obviously it's really important, um, but sometimes the positive things are not always as positive as they seem. Kind of like the helping episode we had, um, where sometimes helping is actually really bad for you. Yeah. And I think that it's really good to call out the times where maybe um, work-life balance programs are not helpful um i think there's a lot of examples of where organizations will put like you know your dry cleaner your doctor your everything is on the campus of the company right and is that really meant to be for your benefit right or is it serving the organization's um needs more right and i think it's really important to be critical as you look at this content and see like is the flexibility actual true flexibility or are they making life things easier for you so that you don't spend as much time on the life things right yep absolutely yeah and I think that uh this basically hints at the idea that in society still uh women are expected at home to take on more of the burden of childcare, household duties etc um and what this article basically argues is that in the workplace, people uh, preserve that narrative about what women are doing um, and preserve that narrative about the extent to which women are participating in, in the household um, to say, well, the reason that women aren't advancing here is because of work-family conflict. And so if we put these work-family conflict programs in place, then we're doing our part to help women to make sense of work and family. And if they choose not to participate in these or they can't make sense of it themselves with the resources we're giving them, then women's stalled advancement is not our fault because we've kind of done everything that we can do. And um, in this particular study, so just to give a little bit more background, the way that they came to this conclusion was that they actually started off getting hired by this company to examine. And this is a, a big consulting firm, a prevalent consulting firm. They don't say which one for anonymity purposes, but 
It's a well-known consulting firm. And uh, basically what they did was they were hired initially to try to examine how to create work family programs that would help to further women's advancement within the organization. So that was the task of these researchers was that the organization wanted them to kind of get to the bottom of what's going on from a work family perspective so they could offer better work family offerings for working women, basically. And as they started doing interviews to try to get to the bottom of what was going on, they found some really interesting things. Um, And so over the course of the uh, data collection process, they collected data for uh, 18 months And they uh, started off by doing this study that the organization asked them to do on the culture of the organization. And then they ended up doing their own two studies on a study of men's professional identities and a study of women's uh, and men's leadership identities. So they did a bunch of interviews. And basically over the course of that time period, they interviewed 107 people uh, who were serving as consultants within the organization and five HR people within the organization. And out of the consultants that they interviewed, 33 were women and 74 were men. And uh, so they basically were doing these interviews. And partway through, what they found was that both women and men were speaking about work-life balance difficulties. So this idea that uh, women's advancement was only linked to the fact that they were experiencing work-life balance problems didn't seem quite accurate because... First of all, men were also expressing a lot of work-life conflict that was keeping them unhappy with their split between work and life. Um, They just weren't voicing those concerns as frequently because they didn't see it as masculine. Um, Women were voicing work-life concerns across the board, whether they had children, if they were single, and men were doing the same thing. So basically Mm -hmm. what they came to the conclusion was, well, part of what's going on in this organization that's keeping women from advancing might be work-life balance issues. But it seems like a bigger problem that's going on is that the way that you're making people work and the expectations that people are going to be on 24-7 is actually causing problems for everybody. Um, And maybe if you wanted to make sure that everybody could be objectively evaluated according to talent, we should address the overwork issue as opposed to trying to put these work-life balance things in place that are sort of like band-aids on Mm -hmm. a larger problem um and when they brought that up and basically said like our solution to your issue is that we need to look further into overwork and that maybe some of these overwork this overwork culture could have a bigger issue for women because they might also be overworked at home but generally this is a a problem for everyone um the company fired them from doing the research study um so clearly they had hit a hot button issue Um, And then they continued to collect data using their personal contacts within the organization after that to get to the bottom of like, well, what was going on here? Um, So basically the, the bottom line is that they saw that senior leadership was using these work family programs as sort of a way to show that they were doing their part to care about social issues within the organization. But in reality, they didn't care that much about employees in the end because what they wanted to preserve was a work culture that was actually really unhealthy for everybody. So, um, so that's kind of high level what they found, but I just thought that was super interesting. And the fact that they told that story in the paper, like we got fired and here's what we think happened. And here's the email that we got that said we got fired. And then here's how we continue collecting interviews and whatever. Um, it's kind of some drama that you don't usually see in a research study. (laughs) (laughs) That's yeah. A lot more drama than you usually see in a research study. Yes. Um, that's so fascinating though. I mean, I know that, so it's the consulting firm then that fired them. So that was the client was one of these big consulting firms. Okay. I mean, I think that not to uh, dive into that, but I think everyone knows that some of those consulting firms are known for overworking their employees and their, um, I mean, I've heard people say that they're comfortable with turnover after a couple of years because basically you, you churn and burn, like you just keep going, right? You get the next group in and work them crazy and then they leave then you bring the next group of people in so it seems to be a a very common culture um for these types of consulting firms so that's already sad but it's really sad to me that this is what happened um and that they didn't really care about fixing the problem they just cared to put the vision the right 
visuals in place right they wanted yeah. to make sure it looked good that they yep. care they quote care about women and employees and so they're putting in these programs to help them when in reality those are just a facade to make it yeah. seem pretty and good but down deep down they didn't really care and they didn't want to fix it like the fact that they fired the people that were telling them hey this is broader than just a woman's problem this is an overwork issue and they were just like eh, too bad we're not dealing yeah. with that yeah yeah and I think it was really interesting because one of the things that they highlight a lot in this paper is that this work family narrative was something that kept employees from asking bigger questions about why their work was structured the way it was so mm -hmm. like there was this very underlying kind of masculine um dominant uh competitive culture that was happening within the organization that kind of got left untouched because all of the problems that they were seeing with regard to women's advancement were sort of slated as this is because women experience work family conflict and we put these things in place for women to to deal with their work family conflict and if it's the case that women can't make it work given the resources that we've given them, then we've done our part. Then it's on them, mm -hmm. right? Um, so it was like this offloading of responsibility through work-family conflict narrative that allowed them to kind of not ask bigger, broader questions about why women were stalled in their advancement. And it was really interesting because, like, uh, they found uh, in a lot of the interviews that they did that, um, you know, leadership was perceived as being anti-female, um, that women had actually a lot of the stories that they shared were actually indicative of being discriminated against in the organization. Um, that there was like this need to conform to this very masculinist norm within the organization in order to get ahead. Um, and so instead of looking at those things as one of the reasons why women weren't getting ahead in the organization, that like perhaps they could be biased in terms of who they think fits their ideal of what a partner could look like or what a senior consultant could look like. Instead, they just sort of made this narrative of, oh, well, we're not seeing a lot of women in these upper echelons because they choose not to take advantage of these work family. They choose to prioritize family over work. And so in order to kind of accept that narrative, um, the organization itself created such a strong push around this that the people that were in that system, even though the things that they were reporting were like other problems than like, oh, I just can't get ahead because I'm selecting to spend more time with my family, that they were reporting these other things, they still would come back to this idea like, but you know, probably I'm not getting ahead because I just haven't prioritized my time properly. Or men would uh, start to talk about work-life problems, but then they would kind of taper off and say, but, you know, um, that's not really, you know, here or there. It doesn't really bother me the same way it would bother a woman. So they were mm -hmm. also, like, compartmentalizing those parts of themselves that were being bothered, which could end up being, like, very exhausting over time, um, and sort of thinking about, like, these conflicts that they were facing because of overwork in general that women were just more willing to recognize but also were overblaming um, because as being the only reason that they weren't getting ahead. Men were not even recognizing those conflicts at all, which also made it easier for people to keep this narrative going that like work family conflict is what's keeping women back because they're the ones that experience it, not us. Um, so and that helped them to make that case because if we could say that work family conflict only happens for women, then that clearly explains why women are having a problem getting ahead, but men aren't. So it was this very interesting narrative, but they put into the paper more or less that they don't think that this is uncommon, that a lot of companies are having this conversation about women's advancement is due to work family conflict. And if we put things in place to help work family conflict, it should help women. And if it doesn't help women, that's because women themselves are choosing family over work. Um, yeah. And that it's this perpetuating kind of cycle. Yeah. So, I mean, I would agree that that probably happens in a lot more places than just this one um, organization that they studied um, to get deeper into what was going on with them. And it sounds like they just created a toxic culture where, yeah. you know, competitiveness has to look one specific way. Ambition looks one specific way. Um, you know, dedication looks one specific way. So if you're not fitting those molds, 
then you can't possibly be good enough to be a leader or whatever that looks like within that organization, a senior or whatever. Um, and people were, you know, there's certain groups maybe that were fitting those molds better or just the narrative, like you were saying, like people are talking about it, that women are having this challenge. So then when they, a woman is struggling to, you know, maybe stay late because she has to pick up her kid from school, people notice it because that's what's being mm-hmm. talked about. But if a man was to leave at the same time, it's probably not as noticeable because you're just not talking about it in the same way. So you're not, you're thinking about the fact that women are having this problem. So when you see it, it's like validating your assumptions versus, mm-hmm. you know, actually looking at things objectively and seeing that, oh, there's men and women that are having these same problems because we've created this culture um, of, you know, overwork and excessive, um, competitiveness, ambition, et cetera, whatever you want to call it, um, that they just, people are not realizing when it's happening to men as much. And to your point with some of the interviews, it sounds like the men were also just trying not to, I mean, maybe not consciously, I don't think this is conscious by any stretch, but just not but they were also not buying into the fact that this is an issue for them. Yeah. Um, so even if it was, they're just already buying into that narrative and that story that they're being told and living by stereotypes like they're just going with their stereotype that this is who I am I don't have work family conflict and then they just move on with their lives yeah and the women on the other hand are being told they have this conflict and so then that probably makes it even more and more evident to them and that creates you know conversation around it them talking about it and then it's just highlighting that this population has a struggle and nobody else does yeah yeah it's really interesting because um they actually, as you're saying, the unconscious part's actually really important to this paper because they're not trying to say that the employees or even the employer necessarily is aware that they're doing this. Although it did seem interesting that they fired them after they said, no, it's actually a problem with your company uh, and the way you're doing work and not a problem with women and work family conflict. Um, but they basically use this method of analysis for the interviews where they didn't just look at the words people said, but they actually analyze them to look for hesitations in speech or stumbling in speech or uh, reframing or rephrasing ideas later to sound more coherent or cohesive than they were in the beginning. So um, they actually analyze the data looking for more of these unconscious turns that people made in terms of explaining their conflicts, emotional conflict um, and they were very clear that they don't think that people actually had this worked out, that they were sort of stuck in a system where they were trying to make sense of how do they, and I thought that this was an interesting way of explaining work-life work conflict. They called it um, love-work conflict. They basically said um, that these individuals were looking to fulfill their human needs for love and for work and purpose. And that they were having a hard time figuring out how to make those two things fit together. And that Men and women were both having conflicts with making those two things fit together, but men were uh, easily or more easily able to unconsciously turn that off, um, whereas women were allowing themselves to more readily recognize it. The part that they were having trouble with was allowing themselves to take on a work identity in favor of a family identity. So they were more concerned and had more unconscious struggle around allowing them to be seen as a bad mom, whereas men had more unconscious struggle around allowing them to be seen as a bad employee because they had family concerns. So like a couple, just because it might be interesting, um, just to give an example of how they um, how they analyze some of this qualitative data. So this one guy uh, that they analyzed his segment his segment was um I'm taking a road of putting clients first in a lot of situations I'm trying to actively work against that and then he pauses and then he says but I I can get myself in danger that family time will always come second now all that said I mean I and then he stumbles again I don't I don't think I'm a terrible father because you know I I my typical routine in the day is to get up at seven the boys have piled into our bed at 6 30 and kicked and rolled around and talked get out of bed at seven, help my wife do breakfast for the kids, help them get dressed. And then I leave around eight or eight, 10. They're leaving for school around the same time. And then the weekends are, you know, they're overwhelmingly family oriented with the exception of a call here or a call there. So they've got a lot of sports. We'll go to a friend's place for dinner with the kids or so at least, you know, I just want you to know, you know, I'm not one of those, you know, Hollywood bad dads. So he's, 
So then they sort of interpret that by saying he admits to prioritizing family second, but he's obviously troubled by it. And then the rest of the excerpt is about warding off the fear that he's a bad father. Um, He uses strong words like danger, terrible father, overwhelmingly bad Hollywood dads. He stumbles a lot, makes abrupt shifts in topic away from the emotionally charged possibility that his parenting might be terrible to instead focus on the emotionally neutral daily routine he engages in with the children to show that he is there for them and in fact is overwhelmingly there for them on weekends. So his statement (laughs) affirms not only the absence of a negative rather than a claim that he is a good father implying that some element of doubt remains so that's the way that they looked at these different segments um which i thought was really interesting um and they had people that were like trained in this uh theoretical approach to uh looking at qualitative statements to help them go through and make Mm -hmm. some of these conclusions um so i thought that that was like a super interesting way to uh go through that um and they also did the same um thing with women who basically had as I said the opposite uh kind of approach which was um talking more about this idea that uh they can't they don't want people to see them as a mom because they want people to see them as an employee but they also feel this really strong pull because everyone sees them as having to be family oriented or wanting to be more family oriented they also have this really strong pull of but I want you to know that my family is the first thing to me um so anyway they were interesting yeah I think that goes into like I mean we can go and take this break this apart into a million pieces in terms of society and the different um you know cues that we have what we're told to do the you know the underlying um issues within our culture around gender and family and work and stereotypes that you're supposed to fit into and it seems like that's obviously coming out here right so Mm -hmm. as a man you should be the breadwinner you should be at work you should be um being a good employee and being ambitious and succeeding in that realm um, and then as a woman, you should really be focused on your family and being a good mother and, you know, being a bad mother is way worse than being a bad employee for a woman. So I, it seems like people, and it does, makes a lot of sense. Like that's, we know this through research. We know that this exists. We know that these stereotypes exist and these problems exist in our, the way that we frame gender roles in our culture. So it's not surprising that it's coming out. And in this culture that this company's already created, it almost exacerbates it because it focuses on work-life balance only for women. So it's just continuing to create that same story when there's probably a variety of people, just like we know in the organization, there's probably men that actually value family first, but they don't feel like they can do that. And then there's probably women that value career first and they don't feel like they can do that. So there's, you know, there's definitely issues on both sides. And I think that the way that we approach um, gender in the workplace is actually really harmful to both groups um, because they just don't, you know, they can't be who they want to be. And I mean, that's only talking about men and women. Like obviously there's, there's more depth there. And when we look at, you know, homosexuality transgender all of that but right. just looking at these two groups um there's just so much stress added that shouldn't that you know doesn't need to be and if we could just address that from a broader perspective um i think that you know organizations wouldn't fall into these trappings but it sounds like they just didn't care to fix it because what matters more is how much money each person is bringing in right yeah and i think that they kind of felt this uh, because the work family narrative was so preserved in the organization as like, well, we know that we have a problem with imbalance at the top, but that's because women are struggling with these work family issues. And if we could just solve those work family issues, then this struggle will go away. But as I mentioned before, like a big part of, or a lot of what women were also talking about and men were talking about in the interviews was not just about, as they started talking to them about women's advancement and issues of you know, work family conflict and things like that. People were saying, well, you know, another thing that might be true is just, you know, women don't sell the same way men sell and, you know, they, they're relationship focused. And so they work on building relationships with clients, but you know, guys go in there and they just try to sell the biggest package they can. And that has a really strong effect on sales. And so like women just have a different style. And so I think, you know, for the women that get that and they can do that, 
they'll be good at being huh. partner. But for the other women that don't, like it might take a little longer or that might not be the best role for them or um and or people will say like, well, I know somebody who, uh, you know, was really good, but, you know, she started taking this flexible work schedule. And so we saw her less. And once we started seeing her less, you know, like it kind of seemed like she didn't want to be a part of the team, even though there was no indicator in her performance that she actually didn't want to be a part of the team. There was a stigma associated with taking flexibility. So it's like there were these Mm -hmm. other undertones of uh, sort of something more insidious than just women choosing to focus on family um, Mm -hmm. that were happening. But these narratives of we're doing what we can to help women get ahead kind of preserve the status quo within the organization and left unquestioned things that actually, and interestingly enough, they requested turnover data within the organization because one of the main reasons they got hired was because they were like, oh, well, we can't keep women in the pipeline. But what they found was that men and women were turning over at the same level. Um, across the organization so they were like well it's not a turnover issue and Mm -hmm. it's not an issue of you know of you know whether or not you take advantage of work family policies and it's not an issue of whether you feel work family conflict so what is it that's keeping people from these top top levels and so I think that you know this is a broader conversation about what do companies really mean when they put some of these programs in place so like you can ask the same question about diversity and inclusion programs for example like is the company actually dedicated to trying to create an inclusive workplace or are they trying to point to something that they're doing? Um, So like, look, you know, while we might have all these wonky processes in place that produce inequality within the organization, look at what we're doing. We have a diversity training and we have, uh, you know, employee resource group and we have this and that. But when you look at the numbers, they're stagnant. So it's like, well, what are you actually doing to address these issues? And do you care enough to actually dig into like, look yourself in the mirror and ask the hard questions? Or are you just trying to do something to distract people from what's actually going on? So I think that like from an employee perspective, it's important. I think to, if you're in a culture like this to ask yourself the hard questions, like, you know, what is it that's actually keeping me from advancing? And a lot of women, um, especially when you're in masculinized contexts and people are pushing you to think about things this way, a lot of women and and other minorities or just people in general who experience some kind of discrimination, they're very unlikely to call it discrimination. Like when you hear a story about somebody else that is discriminatory. The research shows you're likely to say, yeah, that sounds like discrimination. But when it happens to you, people don't like to think of themselves as victims of things. They like to think of themselves as in charge of their own destiny. And so people are less likely to call the same situation that happened to them discrimination than they would to call it for somebody else. So I think it's also important to kind of ask yourself the broader questions about, well, what is the what is my company doing to create a meaningful and fruitful work environment for me what is actually available to me to make this situation my own or am I working in a situation where I'm being told that you know it's my choice to take advantage of or not take advantage of a particular policy or it's my choice to figure out how to make work and family fit together but at the end of the day they're creating a situation for me that's untenable or impossible and I'm blaming myself for the failure because that's easier than asking the harder questions about where can I find an actual environment where I'm a partner in in my success as opposed to uh, I'm I'm climbing an uphill battle to make myself successful. I think that one of the things that um, you could ask yourself and what you're saying right here is thinking about who is in a leadership role. Because like what you were describing yeah. with the sales piece, you were describing that, okay, well, men just go in and they sell and women are building relationships. And then if you look up at leadership, all of them have the same exact style. Then you're like, okay, so clearly it's a type that they're right. looking for, not um, who's performing better. Because I mean, just going back to the sales example, let's be real. Building relationships can be very, very important for selling. You know, if you build a really strong client relationship and then that person that that you maybe were working with, a point of contact in one organization leaves and goes to another, then they might bring you into that organization. And honestly, I've had that happen a lot in my career where I've worked with a client. Things have gone really well. They move to another organization and they're like, hey, can you connect us with their sales team? We want to bring you guys in again. And what? why is that? Because we did a good job and we built a good relationship. Right. And the same thing goes during the sales process. You know, sometimes sales processes are very long. Um, like right now we're going through 
a sales process with a, a like a local agency and it's a very 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 long process but mm-hmm. what does the salesperson do the salesperson actually had me come to one of the first meetings and connected me with another psychologist on their team and then just really um like kind of wanted to cultivate a relationship between us which is kind yeah. of a funny approach but like that was his strategy and I think that it's helped because now I've been able to speak frankly to this person I've met with them at outside of these contexts and and um, we have a relationship that doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily win the sale, but I think it really does help yeah. um, with the whole process that we have these relationships. So anyways, that's like a very, like a long detail about the sales, sales process, but no, that's to get true. at the point that different styles can do things really differently and still come up with good results in the end. Like we have salespeople that are very, very vastly different on our teams and they're just you know, some people are very relationship focused. Some people are less so. Um, some people are upsellers. Some people are kind of a slow burn type sellers. And like, mm-hmm. it's totally fine. And each of them do really well. Right. And it doesn't matter who you are. Um, and so I think that that's really critical. If you're sitting there in your organization, you're like, I want to move up to this job. And this is the type of person I have to be to be in that job because that's what yeah. everybody else is. Then you know that there's a different problem versus, yeah. oh, well, there's, here's, um, a relationship person here's an upsell person here's a whatever and then you can see that there's variety and so just honing your own specific skills and craft is going to get you there um, versus fitting a mold of what they expect is the perfect salesperson or perfect principal or whatever yeah and you also don't need to I mean I think something that is clear from this paper as well is that people that are trained in a system to think a particular way and to view the world a particular way it doesn't matter if it's a woman that's in charge for example that person could still have these same kind of toxic ideas about what you should be doing or what's required to do well etc so it's not even just about like are there women in these roles it's like what's their attitude about uh, these sorts of issues are they actually like fighting for better policies and practices within the organization that are not limited to just thinking about band-aid solutions but are they actually committed to doing the hard work of achieving equity within the organization and that's something Mm -hmm. where you have to be really open and honest about the organization and be willing to be innovative and answer the tough questions and hear the answers that you might not want to hear um and so I think it's also important to like look up and say okay do I see a bunch of you know women at the top who are basically cookie cutters of the men at the top because <laughs> if that's yeah. true then it's still like there's still one way to be um even exactly. though there might be women in those positions so I think that's also something that people don't often recognize um and maybe would help uh hold everybody a little bit more accountable for asking those questions if people started thinking more in that direction if you're really talented and you're going to take your talent elsewhere if you're not in an organization that's willing to do that um mm-hmm I also think if you're a manager, like just thinking about what you actually, what you say and what you do and how those two things might conflict. So if I'm saying I'm work family friendly, but then I'm emailing my employees um, at, you know, 6 a.m. and expecting that all of them are going to get back to me within half an hour or I'm emailing them at 2 a.m. and expecting they're all going to get back to me within half an hour am I really actually but but hey you know you have a flexible schedule well that's one way that might help you be family friendly but the sentiment of the way that you work on a daily basis is not sending that message so also thinking about are your actions and your words aligned I think more importantly, um, to your example, is not just are your actions and your words aligned, but are you holding people accountable yeah. for something that doesn't align? So if you're saying, I encourage you to use a flexible schedule to to do what you need to do at home, et cetera, but then when it comes to actually giving someone a raise or a promotion, you're like, oh, well, you know, Joe, he's put in like 60 hours a week right. and then you know, maybe another, it could be another man, Matt put in only 40. Well, I'm going to promote Joe. Well, that's not really fair because you're telling, you're sending mixed messages. So you need to be cognizant of that. I think that's even more important than just, you know, do your words and your actions align, but are you actually holding people accountable for what you are telling them? Um, or are you giving them standards that, 
that if they did what you said, don't, you know, they wouldn't actually be able to succeed. So you really need to think through, like, how are you holding people accountable? And if you're putting, if you're really going to be promoting people only that put in a you know a lot more hours or you know be or in the office with facetime more like you gave that other example of you know the person that uses a flexible schedule like just because someone's working from home does that mean they're really not committed that's you know that's not really a fair standard if you're giving people these options so if you are gonna hold people accountable for being in the office and you need to tell them that and be fair in that approach so that people can then decide okay well i'm actually gonna i do want that promotion so i'm gonna be in the office every day or this isn't the type of culture i want so i'm gonna bow out you know I think that you need to be completely transparent so if you're going to have a culture where you need to be working 80 hours a week like that's you know in my opinion that's not great but it's okay as long as you're clear that this is the expectation to then move up so that anybody that wants to can do that and can meet that expectation they understand what it's going to take to get them there that doesn't make it right and that doesn't actually oftentimes that still creates issues when it comes to you know minorities and women and all of that but at least there's a very visible story and I know what why this is happening versus I'm being told, you know, I need to take advantage of these balance um, programs. And yet if I do, I'm actually going to be he- like held accountable for not um, being in the office as much or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, to your point about that, one of the quotes that was in the study, which I thought was so interesting they said that they were interviewing this woman and she was saying um, she got admonished by a coworker and the coworker said uh, because uh, she went to she wanted to go to sleep at a reasonable hour because she felt she was working long days. And so her coworker said to her, you can't make all these plans at night. Um, you have to be there anytime. You have to be on a call when we need you. You have to respond to emails when we need you. The team leader has said about you when we were working late into the night, it's 3 a.m. How come she's not up working? Oh, my um, gosh. So this is like a crazy work culture that they're in. Um, but then it was interesting because they also talked about how uh, women and men sort of didn't allow each other a window into the reality of their lives and how they were actually feeling. And it created all of this like uncertainty for junior level people too. like um, the mm-hmm. one story, the one woman who was a partner, like one of the few female partners um, said, told this story kind of jokingly about how she picked up her child from school and she never is able to do that. And the child said, it's such an honor that you've come to pick me up today. Like, and was all excited about it. And she's like, I thought it was so sweet that like my kid thought it was an honor that I would come pick them up and said it that way. And like this junior person was reporting and saying, I don't know why she said that to me. It was almost like she was telling me if you want to make it to the part that I'm in, this is how little that you're going to see your family. But instead of problematizing it, she acted like she thought it was funny, right? Like uh, that this is a funny way that, and so it's kind of like this perpetuating narrative. And I think like, it's really important for managers and employees to ask themselves, like, how do you speak to other people about the ways in which you're managing your work time or your family time or both? Like, what's the story that you're perpetuating by the way that you, what, what's the narrative that your organization has and are you upholding it and making this unrealistic or scary or impossible for other people or is the way that you're leading people making it so that there's only one way to be and it's whatever way you had to do it or whatever way you saw yourself as having to make it through the organization like I just think these are questions that people don't frequently ask because you get stuck in the wheel of whatever the story is that your organization tells and Mm -hmm. I think a lot of organizations tell this story this is not you know, unique, I think. And we'll see. I mean, for people that are listening, I'd love to hear more about how this resonates with you. But like, um, I just think it's important to, you know, we talk a lot about innovation and creativity in organizations. I think it's important to think innovatively about what's actually working and what's not in your organization and what things really mean and what they don't and are things actually what they're intended to be. And if they are, are they having the intended consequence? And if they're not having the intended consequence, why? And what would it take to have the intended consequence? And is your company ready to go there? And are you part of that conversation? Can you push that conversation? Um, Yeah. So I think that those are all like big questions, but I just think it's an important thing to think about because while there are a lot of companies that are well-intentioned in the offerings that they're putting out there, and a lot of these things do help people to make better sense of their work and life, um, there are also bigger questions about cultures of overwork and 
companies that might take advantage of their employees um, and they could potentially use some things that might generally look good in the public eye, but they can have some negative consequences if they're not um, intended for the right purpose. Right. Agreed. Um, One final thought I had was around um, leaders. So like you were saying that as a leader, like you can take a hard look and you can see like, how can you influence the conversation, but you can do things that are not just influencing conversations. You could promote somebody that does not right. fit the mold like that in and of itself would make a big impact if you're yeah. promoting people that are great performers that are doing good things that maybe are not the exact selling style or whatever it is that's important or that people say is important and then give those people opportunities and give them the opportunity to shine then you can just change people's minds by showing them like hey Look at this person. They are a relationship builder in their selling process and look at the great sales that they've had, you know, or yeah. whatever that looks like. So I think that if you are going to take, you need to take chances on people too. So if you know yeah. that this is happening in your culture and you see that everyone's the same exact type of person, the same exact type of principal leader, whatever, then maybe take a risk and bring in somebody that's a little bit different and obviously you need to be supportive and coach them and, kind of protect them because they're probably going to face some some challenges that maybe somebody that was cookie cutter wouldn't face Mm -hmm. but if you give them the right support and the right opportunities then they can flourish and prove everybody wrong yeah totally I think you're 100% right well thank you for sharing that article I think it was really interesting um sounds like there's a lot of depth and a lot more probably (laughs) in there than what we could cover today I mean it's a very complex and challenging topic but I think it's a good one to just start start the conversation have people start thinking about it a little bit yeah me too I'm happy that we got a chance to discuss it it was also me just like working out my own thoughts around it because I had a lot of thoughts when I was reading it and I thought why don't we take it take it to the uh podcast and hear what our listeners have to say as well yeah so thank you again and everybody we'd love to hear from you love to hear what you thought about the topic um if this resonates with you what you do differently in your organizations to try to overcome these types of issues or if you've seen them and how have you handled it really anything anything about this topic we're super curious what your experience is and what you have to say so please reach out um you can find us on our website workerbeing.com you can email us at workerbeing at gmail.com or connect with us on social media at worker being at twitter um, instagram facebook and linkedin so everywhere at worker being thanks again thanks bye bye the worker being podcast is hosted by us patricia grabar and katina sawyer and produced by ali johnson mm-hmm.